Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I was listening to a podcast this week. It was on the Moth Radio, and uh, it's a uh, the Moth is stories. It's not a Christian podcast at all. It's just a bunch of stories that people tell. And this one guy was telling a story about his uh, grandmother's death. His grandmother was dying, and he starts off the podcast talking about how afraid he is of dying, how afraid he is of dying, and and just the the absolute nothingness that lies on the other side of death. And, uh, and, you know, in that moment, you know, I, I did admit, probably none of the rest of y'all do this, but I did it. I said, Lord, is what I believe true? What, what if he's right? What if there's nothing on the other side of death? And um, so I, I, I asked myself that question. But it just took a second or two for my heart to be confirmed And what I know is true. For those of us who follow Jesus, death is not the end. I started talking to the guy on the radio. He couldn't hear me. But I started talking to him and I said, young man, you're wrong. You're wrong. There is something on the other side of death. There is eternal life with God. In a world that he's creating for those who love him. A world that is going to be perfect and void of death and sorrow illness and all the things that plague us today. And, uh, and in my heart, I was, I was rejoicing. There's a humorous story about a uh, man who ventures too close to the, to the Grand Canyon, to the edge. And as he does, he loses his footing and he begins to slide off the side of the canyon. And of course, fear has gripped his heart. He's grabbing at anything he can to try to arrest his fall. And just before he goes off the edge, he grabs this scrawny little bush and he's holding on with his feet dangling off into space. And he's so afraid. And he looks up at the, at the edge of the canyon and he, he yells, Is there anybody up there? And this voice comes back from heaven and it's a calm voice. says, Yes, there is. And the tourist, he's, he's so excited. He says, God, can you help me? And the voice says, Yes, I can. Do you have faith? Yes, yes, the man said. I have lots of faith. I have strong faith. Good, said the voice. In that case, let go of the bush and all will be All right. And there was a very pregnant pause. And the tourist said, Is there anyone else up there? (laughs) Sometimes taking God at His word is really, really hard when it seems to go against everything that intuitively I think is right or everything that I think is best. But that's what the Lord asks us to do sometimes is, is to trust Him in that which is really hard to do. That was a humorous story, not true, I'm sure, but here's a true story. It's written in the book by Ben Patterson called Waiting, Finding Hope Where God Seems Silent. And he tells this story of, uh, actually, I'm going to just tell part of his story. In the summer of 1988, he and three buddies are, are hiking to the top of the tallest glacier in Yosemite, and uh, two of them are skilled hikers, and, uh, and two of them are not. The two skilled men, you know, take a, a great lead over the other two. He's not one of those who's all that skilled, so he's falling behind, but he's very competitive and hates to lose. And so he tries to find a shortcut so that he can beat his companions, I mean, these experienced guys to the top. 
I'm going to start reading. I thought I saw one to the right of an outcropped rock, so I went up, deaf to the protest of my companion. Thirty minutes later, I was trapped in a cul-de-sac of rock atop the Lyle, Lyle Glacier, looking down several hundred feet to a sheer slope of ice pitched at a 45-degree angle. I was only ten feet from the safety of a rock, but one little slip, and I wouldn't stop until I landed on the valley floor 50 miles below. Uh, or 50 miles away, excuse me. I, I, was, I was stuck and I was scared. It took an hour for the two experienced climbers to find me. And standing on the rock I wanted to reach, one of them leaned out and used an ice axe to chip two footholds in the glacier. Then he gave me instructions. Ben, you need to step out from where you are and you need to put one foot in that first foothold and without a moment hesitation swing the other foot across and land it on the neck stepped step and when you do I'll take your hand I'll pull you to safety but listen he said as you step across don't lean into the mountain if anything lean out a bit otherwise your feet could fly out from under you and you will start sliding down Patterson went on, when I'm, uh, when I'm on the cliff the edge of a cliff my instinct is to lie down and hug the mountain to become one with it, not lean away from it. But that was what my good friend was telling me to do. So I was trembling on the glacier. I, I, looked at his, uh, I looked at him really hard. And for a moment, based solely on what I believed to be true and the goodwill and the good sense of my friend, I decided to do what he said and not what I felt. To lean out, to step out, and traverse the ice to safety. It took less than two seconds to find out my faith was well-founded. As we continue in our study of John's gospel, we're, we're going to come to a story where, you know, I think we're going to find a man who really had a hard time doing what Jesus told him to do. And uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But let's pick up our story in verse 43 of John chapter 4. So if you have your text open in front of you, follow along with me. Jesus has spent two days in the city or town of Sychar in Samaria on his way to Galilee. And we pick up the story, verse 43. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Jesus stayed two days in Sychar. It doesn't tell us how the disciples felt about that, but I imagine they were a bit irritated. They probably didn't like the fact that they had stayed in Samaria for those two days. When they pick up their travel again, Jesus makes the statement along the way, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, probably what Jesus meant, and I say probably because, you know, the context makes it hard to know. But I think he's probably comparing his reception in his own, in his own country of Judea with the reception he found amongst the Samaritans. In Judea, you'll remember that they turned against him and the heat was, was rising. And that was one of the reasons why he left Judea, to go to Galilee. Because he wasn't being well received in Judea. But in Samaria, he found a great reception. So I imagine that's what he means as he's contemplating the last two days. I found great reception amongst those who are not my people. But when he gets to Samaria, he does find a warm reception in Samaria. 
The people had actually been, some of them had actually been down in Judea for the Passover in Jerusalem. They had seen the miracles that he did. And so they are, they are excited that he's coming home, that he's coming back up to Galilee. And they're going to be looking for him to do some of those, those same miraculous demonstrations. Jesus arrives in the, in the city of um, of Cana. You remember that early on in his ministry, in John's gospel anyway, he talks about how he performed one of his first miracles there in Cana at a wedding feast where his mama puts him on the spot and he obliges and turns water into wine. So we're back in that same little town and we pick up the story in verse 46. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, that is to Jesus, and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which would have been one o'clock, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So this story that we have before us is a short little anecdote. Uh, it's a short little story. But I believe it, it's a story about faith. And I believe it illustrates to us three aspects of faith that each of us needs to embrace, recognize is true for us today. We're going to look at this man's faith. I'm going to show you three things about it. And then I'm going to say to you that these three things apply to you as well. The first one is this. Faith in God is a necessity. Faith in God is a necessity. You might not think it is, but at some point in your life, it will be. The man in this story is a royal official. The text actually says he's a king's man. Most people believe he was one of Herod's, one of Herod's men. Herod was the puppet king under Ro Roman auspices. He ruled over Galilee well, for Rome. And some people believe, or most people believe, that he was one of Herod's men. His little boy, again, literally, that's what the text says. His little boy was sick and dying in a neighboring town. Uh, he was pretty much really, really close to death from the text. The, the father thought so anyway. And uh, when he hears that Jesus is in Cana, and he's obviously heard that Jesus can heal folks. No, no telling what other things Jesus had done by this point. But he recognizes that, that Jesus may be able to help him, that he needs, he needs help beyond himself. And so he goes to get Jesus to come back and come back to Capernaum to help him by, by healing his son. Chances are, scholars think, that this man may have had access to horses. So, you know, the, the, the length of time that it took him to get back home, I'm not sure that's true. But, uh, but he makes it up there and he's asking Jesus to come. Here's my point. In everybody's life, there's going to come a time when you need God. There's going to come a time when you, you need to exercise faith in God because things are beyond your control. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do to affect the outcome of this thing or that thing. And maybe an accident, you know, I think of Fred and Darby. 
Maybe an accident, maybe an illness, maybe a broken relationship, a natural catastrophe. But every one of us is going to come face to face with the stark realization that there is something that I can't control, that there's something that I can't change, there's something that I can't fix. And it is then, if not sooner, that every one of us is going to realize I, I have to trust God. I have to look to God. Now, I think we can fight that. I think, that's in, I think, that's in each, I think God created that in each one of us. And don't, don't misunderstand. I think you can suppress that. But there's going to come a time when I think just every human being is going to come to the spot and to the place where they recognize they need somebody beyond themselves because they can't take care of this. Now, this dad, his son lies dying on a cot back home, and he recognizes he needs God. He recognizes he needs something beyond himself, and it is undeniable, and he, it drives him to go and seek the Lord Jesus because Jesus does things that only God can do. Number two, here's the second aspect about faith. Faith in God has its demands. Faith in God expects something from us. In this particular case, when the man shows up to Jesus and he says, I need you to come to Capernaum, Jesus' response to him in the text is, you people will not believe unless, unless, you, unless you see. Now, just like Jesus did quite often, and you read your New Testament and see if I'm not right in this, people come to Jesus and, and you know, he's not obliging right off the bat all too often, or maybe not all the time anyway. He pushes back. He, he, kind of, he kind of, you know, puts them off, if you would. And uh, here's what I think, Jesus. And again, I, again we, we've got to try to understand, well, why did Jesus say that to this man? And here's, here's what I think Jesus is challenging. I, I think he's challenging the come down to Capernaum part. I think he's challenging the man's thing about, I need you to come to Capernaum to heal my son. And so Jesus is basically saying, you people need to, you need to see, you need to see in order to believe. In other words, the man is saying, he's expecting to have to see what Jesus is going to do. Now, I think when Jesus says this to the man, I think he's looking beyond the man and he's speaking to the generation all around him. Or he's saying it to the man, right? But he's really speaking to everyone listening to him. You know, you people don't believe unless you see. And I think he's challenging that idea that somehow or another, you have to go to, you, I have to come to Capernaum to heal your son. In other words, you don't really believe that it's, that it's me somehow in and of myself able to do this. Let me see if I can somehow give some validity to my thought. You know, there's another time in the Gospels, it's not in John's Gospel, I don't believe, maybe we'll come upon it, but I think it's in Matthew's Gospel, where this guy comes to Jesus, and it's not his son, but it's his servant, and he says, my servant is really ill, and, uh, and I, need you to, I need you to heal him. And I don't remember if Jesus says something about going or not, but the man says this, but I don't need you to come to my house. I know who you are. You just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And you'll remember how astounded Jesus is by that. And he says, I tell you what, I have not found faith like this anywhere in Israel. This man's faith is incredible. So what was incredible about his faith? That the man recognized who Jesus was in his person and that he didn't need to be there to touch or to do anything else. All he had to do was say the word and his servant would be healed. 
And I believe that what Jesus is saying to, to us in this passage, and what he's saying to the people of that day and to this man is that, you know, you're, you're, you don't really understand that who I am and that my word, my word is, is capable of healing your son. Now herein lies, if you would, herein lies, I think, the, the demands of faith. The demands of faith are we have to believe God at what he says, regardless of whether we've seen anything or not. Regardless of what we might have seen, God wants us to believe his word. So he says this to the man. The man then responds and says what? No, I need you to come now down to Capernaum. And Jesus responds to the father. He says, go your way. Your son lives. Jesus denies the man's request, but answers his heart's desire. And he says, go home. I've, see, I've healed your son. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says that faith is, now listen carefully, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, that doesn't mean that faith is we simply believe stuff that there's no evidence for. That's not what faith is. Neither does faith mean that we believe everything against all reason. That's not what faith is either. Faith is that we trust with the lack of empirical evidence. We trust God's words without necessarily having the confirmation of being able to see it, touch it, replicate it. We, we believe what God says. See, empirical evidence is that which is verifiable by observation or experiment. Faith is knowing and trusting something that can't be necessarily proved by seeing it or touching it. By the way, all of us are in that boat. All of us are in that boat. And here's the demands of faith. The demands of faith are that you take God at his word and you believe him at what he says, even though you can't prove it through your senses. Can you imagine being the father? Think about this for just a second. You've come from Capernaum, and you've come with this dire thing in your heart. My son is dying, and I need you to come and touch him. And in fact, you've said it twice, and Jesus says, I'm not coming. Go, your son is well. So, I, I, you know, did the father struggle at all? I have no idea, but I can't imagine him not struggling a little bit. Hey, I've come to get you. I've come to bring you back. And now you're telling me to go home because my son is well. How, how do I know that's true? And it says, it says, well, what if I get home and he's just as bad and I've wasted all this time and you haven't come with me? I mean, that could have been going through his mind. And I can't imagine that it didn't. But at the end, he leaves without Jesus. I don't, I don't know how long he struggled, but he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. The, the faith demands that we believe what God says, even though we cannot necessarily prove it with our senses. Number three, the third aspect of faith is that faith in God has rewards. And uh, so the man leaves. He's heading home. He meets his servants coming to get him. And they're coming to get him because his son is well. And he says, when did this happen? When did my son turn? And he said it was one o'clock yesterday afternoon that the fever broke and everything changed. And of course, the man, the man can think back and he says, man, it was one o'clock yesterday when Jesus told me that my son is well. And the Bible says that he believed he and his whole household. Here, here's, what the man, here's what the man goes from. He goes from believing Jesus' word at that moment to believing in Jesus the person. 
He goes from just taking Jesus' words and believing them and acting on them. Now, now he goes to believing in Jesus, uh, the person. And here's, here's what I think the reward of, of faith is. The reward of faith is, is greater faith, greater confidence in God. In other words, when I put my faith in the words of God, then, then God increases my faith and, and he takes me from, from putting my faith in just the word of God. He, he takes me and he, he helps me begin to put my faith not in the words of God necessarily so much, but in the person of Jesus. So that as I have faith in the person of Jesus, all of his words are true. I go from trusting just what he says to trusting him, the person. That's what happens to the guy. He goes from believing those words to believing in Jesus, the person, that he's the Messiah, that he's the one that God is, is looking for. So if you take Jesus at his word, whatever the issue is, and you trust him, the next thing that comes along is greater faith and greater faith and greater faith. And you move from just trusting the things that God says in your Bible. You begin to trust in the God of the Bible. You begin to trust in the Savior of the Bible rather than just his words. And I'm not nitpicking. I really hope you follow what I'm, understand, what I'm saying. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm trying to say it's not just that we trust the words, we trust the person. Now, let me give a couple of caveats to this in, in the way of a kind of a warning here, okay? We must make sure as we put our faith in the words of God that, that our faith is in the actual words of God and not what we want the words of God to be. Let that sink in. We need to make sure we're putting our faith in the word of God, words of God and not in what we want the words of God to be. And uh, there's, two, there's two perspectives on, on this warning that I'm giving. One of them is this. We believe at Bacon's Castle, and, and I think most, most Christians who would affirm the Bible believe this. We believe that God has spoken to us objectively in his book, in his Bible, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. We, we believe that God has actually given us something. I know this is my iPad, but my Bible is here too, okay? We know that he has actually given us his objective, truthful word, and we can believe it. But here's, here's the perspective warning that I want to give you. We have to rightly understand his word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Now, on a number of issues in the Bible, we can come to different interpretations, okay? We can. And the reason I know that is because there's Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and, you know, there's a whole gamut of Christians who believe different things, that the Bible is saying different things. But and I've said this over and over again, and I know you all know it, but let me just repeat it. That doesn't mean we're both right. We can't both be right. A cannot equal B. And then we ask ourselves, well, what does it mean that I think it's A and somebody else mean, thinks it's B? Well, I think the Bible tells us we see through a dark glass now. And so, unfortunately, that's how it's going to be. Now, when Jesus comes back, we'll all be on the same A or the same B because he's going to make it really, really clear at that time. But for now, we, we need to recognize that though we believe in an objective truth from God, we need to rightly discern that. You know, this morning in the new members class, we were talking about baptism, for instance. That's, that's, an, that's an illustration. You know, uh, baptism, 
for, for a great portion of the body of Christ. They believe baptism represents something different than, than we would as a Baptist. We, we believe that baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and should be applied to believers. There are others who say, no, it's a sign of the fact that you are in covenant with God through your parents, and there, so therefore we're going to baptize infants. And so we just, both of those are not true. Both of those are not true. They can't be. The, the, those two, they're two very different understandings of baptism, all right? Which of them is right? Well, we have to do our best to rightly discern, you know, the Word of God. And uh, can I say something here? I know this is, this, is, this is some of the stuff that God's been working in me, and if you've heard it before, forgive me. I know some of you have, but maybe even I've showed, shared from this pulpit, so forgive me double if that's the case. But in our, in our study of Thessalonians, in, in the book of Acts, Paul goes into Thessalonica, and he, for three weeks he teaches them that the Messiah had to die and rise again. And that is absolutely contrary to everything they've ever believed. It's absolutely contrary. They believed Messiah was going to be this reigning king. I mean, you know, he die? How could he die? How could he suffer anything? He's the Messiah. Paul goes in and for three weeks says to them, listen, everything you've ever believed about Messiah from your Old Testament is wrong. And here's what the Old Testament really teaches, that Messiah must die and rise again, and Jesus is he. And the Bible tells us that the Thessalonians, you know what they did? They ran, they ran Paul out on his ear. They weren't willing to listen to any of that. He goes 45 miles down the road, and he goes to the town of Berea, and he does the same thing. He goes into the synagogue, and for however many Sabbaths it was, he teaches them, listen, I know everything you've been taught about Messiah is wrong. He's, he's to die and rise again, and Jesus is him. And then it says of the Bereans this. It doesn't say that they believed everything he said. It doesn't say that. You know what it says? And I know you do. It says they were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because this is what they did. They searched their Old Testaments to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, here's, here's, this is something that God is working in my heart, and I say to you this morning, we need to search our Scriptures and make sure that what people have taught us is true. We need to be diligent to seek, the, to search the scriptures and make sure what we believe is true and not just hold to something because somebody taught it to us. Now, the second, the second thing that I want to say about hearing the words of God here that I, I've given you this caution, you know, there's this caveat, listening to the word of God and putting our faith in the words of God leads to greater faith. And I said, hey, the caveat is make sure we understand what is the word of God and make sure, we, and, and from the objective Bible, we need to make sure we're understanding it. But, but there's another sense in which God speaks to us subjectively. You know, a lot of times in our Baptist circles, we really shun this and we're really shy of this aspect of God speaking to us. But if God is personal, and He is personal, He is a person, He says, I'm your Abba Father. So if He's a Father, He still speaks to us. He still speaks to me. He still speaks to you if you're his child. And you can hear his voice. And I know this is so difficult. How do we hear the voice of God? How do we know what God is saying? And, and I know it's, it's hard because he doesn't use audible voices. And he doesn't often send Gabriel. He didn't, he didn't often send Gabriel, everybody. Every once in a while he sent Gabriel. But he didn't always send Gabriel. 
And he was speaking to the heart. How he spoke to the prophets, I, I don't know if it was audible, if it was in their hearts. I'm not sure how, but, but listen to what I'm saying. I hope you're following me. God still speaks to us. He still speaks to my heart. Now, we've got to be careful here because we need to acknowledge that there's a lot of subjectivity in God speaking to my heart, right? And I think we all recognize that because we say things like this. I sense God said to me. Or I believe God said to me. Or we say, I feel like God said to me. Why do we use words like that? Because at least for most of us anyway, we, we recognize that in the subjectivity of listening to the voice of God, we may miss it. We may not exactly be right. But I'm telling you, when God speaks to your heart, you need to listen to him. When, when you hear his voice on the inside, you need to listen to what he's saying. And you do it because as you listen to the voice of God and as you step out in faith and what the things that God has spoken to you, when you step out in faith, he increases your faith. He grows your faith. And he grows your faith not just in his words, but he grows your faith in him personally. Man, I hope you're understanding that distinction because that's the distinction I'm trying to make. That the reward of faith in, in trusting God at his word is you begin to trust him, the person. You know, um, y'all saw me maybe asking Joni and some others about this. You know, I was talking to them before because I want to know whether I've shared this before. I've shared it in writing. I don't know if I've shared it from this desk, but if I have, again, I ask you to forgive me uh, for sharing things over and over again. And I think as I get older, I'll probably be prone to that. But... Um, when um, all, my, all my life as a pastor, I'd officiate at, at funerals, and, and people would say, I want to see, and you in the new members class, forgive me, you're hearing again twice in one day, but you know, I would, I would hear people say, I want to see Mama Joe, I want to see Papa Joe. And in my heart, I would say to myself, why don't you want to see Jesus? Why, why isn't Jesus, when you, get, when, you, when you land before the Lord in, in, uh, in the, in the new age, final age, right? When, when you rise to meet him, or why don't you want to see him first? Why do you want to see Papa Joe or Mama Joe? And I would think in my heart, if you were spiritual like me, I'd never say this, but I would think it in my heart. If you were spiritual like me, you'd want to see Jesus first, not Papa Joe or Mama Joe. And then Shep dies. And I'm telling you guys, it didn't take long at all for me to want to see Shep more than I want to see Jesus. It really bugged me. Really bugged me because I said, God, I, I know I love you more than my son. Why, why do I want to see him more? And this is, this is one of those times I subjectively heard the voice of God and I felt like I heard it so clearly. And this is what I heard Jesus say to my heart. And he said, Son, you and I have never been apart, and we are not apart, and we will not be apart one conscious moment. I'll, you'll always be with me. I'll always be with you. Made me think of the older son in the prodigal. I, seriously, that's what I thought. The older son. And, and the older son, remember, he didn't recognize that the father was always with him. Remember that? He said, you didn't even give me this. And the dad says, man, son, you've, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. How'd you miss that? And the father said to me, he said, Jimmy, we, Jimmy we've never been apart. And the reason you miss your son now is because you're apart from him. And you can't talk to him anymore. And you can't be with him anymore. And so it's only natural that you want to see him the way you do. And as for me, we're never going to be apart. Never. 
And I recognize that what I, what I would always say in my heart about they long to see the physical appearance of Jesus. But Jesus isn't his physical appearance. Jesus is Jesus. You know, you're saying he's the person. That was, that, was, that was so awesome to my heart. So awesome to my heart. God speaks to us. When he speaks to us, listen to his voice. And as you do, he will increase your faith in him, the person, and, and not just in his words. Now, I'd like to conclude this morning. I'd like to conclude, and I'd like to go back to the dad and the story, if I could. I mean, that's the text. That's the story. But I want to go back to the dad and the story. And I want to talk about him for a moment. What are we to do when a storm like his hits our life? What are we to do when, you know, our child is dying of cancer or the doc says he's done everything he can for you or for your spouse or your sister is killed in an automobile accident or your house burns down or your spouse leaves you or you name it, whatever is the worst storm that you can think of. What do we do when the storms of life rage around us? And can I say this? All of us as followers of Jesus, we recognize that, that storms come and, and the scaffolding of our lives can crash all around us. What, what do we we do when that begins to happen. And as I, as I read this story, and as I thought about this particular gentleman, this dad in this story, I, I don't know if he knew these four words of God, these four things that God has told us. I don't know if, he's, if he knows them, but we know them. And so I'm talking about faith this morning. So I want to say to all of you that are in a storm, and I mean, it's a bad storm. And you know what? I know you, and some of you are in a bad storm. And some of you see the storm clouds on the horizon, and you know the storm is coming. So I've got something. I'm going to quickly run through this, but I want to share with you four words of God, if I could, that I really want you to hold to by faith. Here's the first one. God loves you, and trials do not say otherwise. God loves you, and storms of life are not an indicator of that not being true. You know, when the storms of life come, immediately you begin to, you begin to hear in your conscious ear, you begin to hear, God doesn't love me, or God doesn't love you. If God loved you, He would not bring this on you, or He would not have allowed this to come into your life. And, and, and so, you know, we, we hear that voice, and Satan is whispering it. Maybe our old nature is whispering it to us. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. But I want to say to you this morning, here's the Word of God. Your trials are no indicator whatsoever of whether God loves you or not. That God loves us, the Bible is abundantly clear. First of all, it says God is love. But secondly, in the Old Testament, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And you could say, well, that's just to, that's just to the Jews. That's not to all mankind. And I, I think we could make a case, and I don't have time to do it, but I think we would have make a case that God so loved the world in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God says, He so loved the world that He sent His Son. God loves us. And yet Jesus said, in this world you will have trials and tribulations and you're going to have storms and it's going to be difficult. But here's what Paul said. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the storms that I have to go through, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, that is God, God subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we are ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The reason bad things happen to us is because God has allowed or God has assigned corruption, the corruption of sin to this world. And that corruption has brought death and disease, viruses and plagues and epidemics. It's brought destruction, hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and and wildfires. And, And the Bible says that the earth groans and we groan. We wait for the redemption that is coming in Christ one day. But in the meantime, none of that means that God doesn't love me. None of that means that God doesn't care about me. In fact, God promises something great at the end of it. And James says, count it all joy when you suffer because the testing of your faith produces endurance. There is growth, spiritual growth. My relationship with God is affected positively and it's found somewhere in the crucible of pain and suffering. In other words, you you love Jesus more, you fall in love with God, you trust Him more when you walk walk with Him through this crucible of pain whatever it might be that you're walking through. I know it doesn't seem like it because it really hurts, but trials do not mean God doesn't love you. Number two, if only, this, if only this guy knew that, maybe he knows it after this, if only you know it. Number two, God is fully aware of your situation. Whatever you're suffering, God, God knows. Okay, God is omniscient. He knows absolutely everything. The deist a century ago tried to claim that, that God set it all in motion, wound it up like a clock, and now it's winding down. The universe is winding down. And uh, the universe is heading to a conclusion. I, I, will, I will grant that. But God is not somewhere else. God is intricately and intimately involved in his creation, and he is superintending it. We, we, can, we can debate and discuss as believers how, how specific is his superintention of it, but God is not a cosmic watchmaker who set it in motion and walked away. Colossians 1.15, talking about Jesus, says that he's the creator of all things. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's holding it all together. He, he is involved in this. Matthew 10, 28 through 31. This is Jesus, our Savior, speaking. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. I mean, there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground without God knowing it. it can, could it be possible that you have a problem that somehow God doesn't know? 
Isaiah 59, 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. The implication is that God knows. And he, he is able. The story of Job was written to tell us that God knows that you're not in the middle of some storm and somehow God is unaware of your plight or that he doesn't love you. Neither of those two things are true when you find yourself like this dad did with his son clinging to life and there's nothing he can do. Number three, God will not leave you or forsake you, but instead will give you the grace you need. Paul's, one of Paul's favorite statements for those of us that read it is this one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? The context of that is Paul is saying, you know, I can live with a lot or I can live with a little. I can do all things. That's the context. But it's okay to take that verse and to apply it in a broader way. To say that we can do all things through Christ. He, he, whatever we need, He is able to, he, he will and can and does enable us to walk through it. Paul himself had a trial. Remember this? He asked God several times, remove it, and God said no. And here's what Paul said. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses. The power, the Christ, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He's saying, I'm going to boast in my weakness because Christ helps me when I'm in the middle of that, that pain and that, that thing that's not good. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's what Paul's saying. You know, when I am weak, that's when I find God gives me the grace. I, I experience His grace. My kids said to my wife, why is it you have to go through something as terrible as we're going through to feel the presence of God? Anne's response was, you don't. You can experience the presence of God 24-7, and she's absolutely right, but you never experience it like you do when you, are, when you can't and you need Him and he comes in and carries you. John Crawford, who was a missionary to Africa, he was the heir apparent to David Livingston in Africa when he died in his New Testament. They found this written. I cannot do it alone. The waves dash fast and high. The fog comes, the fog comes chill around and the light goes out in the sky. But I know that we too shall win in the end, Jesus and I. Coward and wayward and weak, I change with the changing sky. Today so strong and brave, tomorrow too weak to fly. But he never gives up. So we too shall win, Jesus and I. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you in the midst of your suffering. He's there. He's going to give you the grace to endure your storm. And if we went down here to the nuclear plant, and again, Jeremy, you correct me if I'm wrong. And they came up to Jeremy and they said, Jeremy, where do you store the electricity? And Jerry, Jeremy would say, we don't store it. We just make it and we put it on the lines. And then when you need it, you flip on the switch and we'll charge you for it. You know, that's, that's, I think, what God is telling us. He's not storing up grace for when you have storms. He's just telling you, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be there in the middle of your storm. And you will always be connected to me. And the grace that you need and the power you need, I'm going to be there for you in the midst of that. You hear me, George and Janet? He's going to give you what you need when you need it and not before. And you can trust Him that He's not going to abandon you. And can I say this? The Surrey nuclear plant may go offline one day and never put energy back on the grid. But you know what? Jesus is always, always going to be putting His grace 
on the grid of our lives because he's never going to leave us and he's going to keep us. Hebrews 13, 5. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Cling to him. Trust him. He's going to be there for you. Remember, Job said this at the end. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. You say it too. I know my Redeemer lives at the end of the storm. And finally, the last thing that, that I wish I could have said to that man, to that dad, and I want to say to you today, which are the words of Jesus, the words of God. And so if you'll just believe them, if you believe them, then God will strengthen your faith and he will, he will grant you what you need. But here, here's the fourth one. God will work to bring good out of the most dire, painful an even heinous situation you find yourself in. Romans 8, 28, we all know it. It's one of our favorite verses. I know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, I've, I've said this many times about that verse. It doesn't say all things are good. <laughs> it doesn't say that at all. It says that God is able to take the storms, the terrible, the, the, the heart-wrenching stuff, and he says, I'm able to turn it and I'm able to bring good out of it. Now, here's where it gets tough, because you can't always see the good, and the good isn't always immediate, and the good doesn't always feel good, and you would never have chosen the good if you had a say-so in it, right? That's where it gets really, really hard. But there's still this promise from God that, again, I'm not far off. And you know these storms and stuff that you're going through? If, if you will trust me, I will work some good out of that. Some redeeming value out of, out of your storm. The greatest Bible text for this, or one of the greatest, is Genesis 50, 19 through 20, when Joseph, remember he's been in prison, not been a good thing for the last number of years, and he's, his brother sold him into prison, and he's had a tough time, but then he gets elevated to the highest position in Egypt. And when his brother, when his dad dies, his brothers think that, that he's going to turn against them. But here's what Joseph said. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me. You brought this storm on me, but God meant the storm for good in, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In other words, God was using that evil. And that evil thing you did, God was going to use it to bring about good. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I preached this message 13 years ago. I've changed it some, changed some of my, my, the way my points read and all. But I did this. I did this 13 years ago. And 13 years ago, when I did this, um, I did it walking by faith, you know? I did it walking by faith, that God loved me, that, um, you know, that He was going to always know what was happening to me, that He was always going to be with me, and that He was going to work good things out of my life. And now, 13 years later, I share this talk with you, not from... Uh, a theoretical stance but I share this talk with you from a personal place and I say to you all today what I said back then and what I say this morning is true he is keenly 
aware of every storm in your life. And he fiercely, fiercely loves you. He is with you. He will never abandon you. He's committing to you the grace you need. He's not going to withhold what you need. And I know you think, I cannot endure another day. But yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because He will enable you. He will, he will give you what you need for that storm you're in. And then I tell you that He will bring good. It's not anything you would have chosen. Not anything you want. But He will bring good and you will see. You will see the good. He's asking you to trust His Word. Not just with this, but He's asking you to trust His words. And then as you trust His words, He's promising that He will help you trust Him over and over and over again. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.